captain and crew. The captain, the captain of the boat I found, was a jolly round-faced fat-lipped and calculating oriental of indeterminate origin. The vessel herself, the Hohenstaufen, was of mixed crew and Liberian registry. Eventually I asked the captain how it had come to pass he'd be skippering some crowd tub in a tax dodge, but he just laughed and told me name and nationality mean little on the high sea. He must have known of what he spoke, though it wasn't much of a ship. In order to steady her in a storm, they had to hoist a ragged little sail amidships. And the bulkheads went to flaking paint, but never mind, it was all vintage steamship a la Troost and so very, very Weimar. I trust I'm not proceeding too wildly for you to keep up. I got on a big boat at this point in time, the Hohenstaufen, a merchantman of convenient registry, the captain of which was an indeterminate oriental with a calculating air, and off we steamed for Hong Kong with a clutch of fellow travelers. You see, I travel very lightly with never more than my hands and pockets full of gear. I carry A, folding money, B, a simple yet elegant carpet bag full of shirts and notions, socks, underwear, ties, clasps, slippers, toilet, and such like articles. C, a leather folding case containing three carefully pressed chocolate brown three-piece suits. D. A thin briefcase for papers and writing materials, mechanical pencil and lead, pen, ink, and blotter, envelopes on a folding postage scale. E. A medical shoulder satchel with a stethoscope for listening, a silver hammer for reflexes, drugs and potions, teas and ointments and such, and F. A shopping bag for odds and ends. Little more. That's really enough, unless you intend to jog or dance or play the grand dame. He, the captain, immediately invited me to his pilot house, sort of a lounge on the bridge, where we sat for the longest time drinking a smoky, dark tea and talking of this and that, waiting for clearance from the harbor master of all people. We watched the tugs jockey for position in the dusk amongst the tankers and the trawlers, the liners and the dredgers. Bremen, our port of embarkation, is such a busy place. The year I sailed, she handled 4.54 million tons of metric cargo from the U.S. of A. alone. And though badly damaged in the war, this old Hanseatic city is still the brew spot for Bex, that king of beers Europeans love. It's the one with the key on the bottle. It's the only German you need to know at this point. I remember the night before I was so savagely beaten by that hired assassin in Kowloon. That's in China, a sort of Hong Kong suburb at the end of the voyage. I was at a dinner party in the seafront estate of the late Harold J. Hung, a wealthy Sino-industrialist. There we sat, overlooking the delicately lit shallow blue pool of Hung's private lake, watched by graceful pagodas, crossed by willow-draped causeways and moon bridges, discussing of all things religion and the modern world. At least, that's what I thought. And it's not because I'm somebody that I was there. I went with a friend, and they didn't know me from Adam or any of the other hoi polloi, no matter how hoity-toity, and of course I'm well-educated, so I had no fear of the social snub so deadly and hurtful to those of us forced to suffer low birth. 
The atmosphere was quite gay, and it's possible I just may have been able to see a bit of my own collarbone when I said to someone, Well, dearie, remember they can only communicate with words in grammatic sequence, even though they be capable, as is everywhere supposed, of making nonverbal signals in order to initiate some sort of dirty work. In the minds of those even more feeble, ignorant, and class-ridden than themselves. To themselves, it's just plop, 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 word after word after word, piled tower-like upward in an ever-mounting babel of incomprehensibility, absolutely undisintegrated and unannealed by the black heat of sleep or even the lesser mental ineptitude of logical disorientation like so many chocolate bricks of Babylon. In a word, it's process, 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 I concluded, in no way intending to insinuate anything arcane or culty. All this must have been apropos of something said in conversation. I can't be expected to remember everything across this great a distance. Such a literate crowd, really, I could barely understand myself. And then, expanding my notion to include the movement of mind itself, I heard myself saying, Without this, they are quite helpless. They can't travel, interconnect, digest their food, move their bowels, maintain an erect attitude. It's total paralysis. A hush settled over the room where I sat drinking a pink burgundy from a crystal goblet, the sort that crack on your teeth should you bite without thought. I failed, for some reason, to recognize the silence for one of embarrassment. How could they fail but be fascinated, I said to myself. I thought for a moment to speak again, but hung himself, my host, the millionaire Hong Kong industrialist Harold J., quite a mensch, really, took my arm and whispered, This Christ pigeon no blong proper this chopstick dinner, my friend. Talky talky too much. His speech was so heavily accented as to be unintelligible if you weren't listening. Of course, I had been social drinking and was somewhat heated. Everyone seemed so witty and such beautiful women. A table mate, the luscious Miss Coy, was almost more than I could bear. And then I understood. Here in the East, my discourse was taken as just so much first-world hoodoo of no more interest than the lives of the saints. So I took the cue from my host and let some others take center stage to speak of things which took their interest. I don't know why I mention it. I merely wish to add that I have often thought, since my voyage to Hong Kong, since my beating and hospitalization, since my subsequent flight across the Pacific to sunny California and my current career in Hollywood, of what that poor, wretched, overworked Roman domestic woman had said to me. And please don't think this a funny book, make-believe, or imaginary traveling, or even composite boudoir farce. Although it be true that a certain tedium has played its part. Ah, you know what I mean, those slow things people do when you watch them, the annoyance of the inevitable that is taking me to my death, those small indications of future activity, the announcements of monotony to come, an advertised action fulfilled in such excruciating detail, the checkout girl with five small items in a slippery plastic bag, a man beginning to dial a number on the telephone, the commencement of a backward count at a given digit, absolutely determinate, ten, nine, eight, seven, etc., 
They have a saying in farm country, and I just know you'll allow it here, about as pleasant as being cornholed by the vet. No matter what sort of attractive packaging disguise it, no matter how removed one's radio hookup, only a man who has been hurt as deeply as I, and who has seen the fatherland so forsaken and justice so vilified, can speak on an occasion such as this with words that are the blood of the heart and the essence of truth. But all this is yet to happen. It is not yet here at the tip of my tail. Needless to say, there were others, other travel rats, seeking some steerage to adventure aboard our boat, the Hohenstaufen, a scheduled freighter carrying machinery and electronic hardware to the less industrialized corners of the world. Not that the, we were in any way at the helm. I mean, we didn't rent it and get the captain drunk and go wherever. It was a real boat. Ask anybody. And the quarters were roughly equal, all of us staying in a class I would describe as purser. Oh, I hope you didn't think I meant we were traveling third class and peeling potatoes with live chickens. I wouldn't do that to save my life. In fact, some of us were quite well off. I, however, have always been a man of moderate means, but I will say this much for myself. I have always done the very best with what I have been left, which is a real American virtue and one of which I think we can all be proud. Call it individualism, but we've got it. We ate our meals together at the captain's table in the officer's mess. A few took tea of chilly afternoons in a section of the lounge. And there was a bar there where those of us who did drank liquor. Not all were going all the way to Hong Kong, but others aboard were to cruise the duration. Our purser was an Anglo-Italic, Fred Summerhill by name. He was quite personable and given over to the sottish life. It was he who mixed so many of the drinks which were drunk, and we all owe him for his silent and somewhat selfless service. There was a short, fat man named Barker who looked like the violent type, someone who couldn't take a ribbing. I had nothing to do with him. Anyway, he kept to himself, as they say, and debarked in Cape Town. There was a degenerate young entrepreneur from Berlin who sought to recover from a nervous disorder right before our eyes. He never said a word and decided to stay in Bombay. And then there was Levis Chase with his pretty little girlfriend, Mary Gay. They were young and in love and would spoon forever on the poop. I could have watched them for hours. Then there was Cayman, little more than a parvenu from Key Biscayne or Boca Raton, a man of perfectly deadly jocosity. Not that he was really old, fifty or fifty-five, the prime of life, really. From the first day out, he would hang on the bar and grumble at every indecent remark. Ha, 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 that's a good one. You know any more funny stories? They, the Cayman, Ernest, and his charming wife, Nanette, were two who quite took my fancy at first. Actually, it was Nanette who was, of the two, much the more active and attractive to be out in a while the hours away. Being a typical husband, he was more often than not the stick in the mud and the gin-soaked blanket. They had retired somewhat early and now traveled the world in search of mild curiosity and civilized personal adventure. And that's what they told me, and it seemed to be true. 
I took them to be a cut above the common lot. I thought they'd be sage and sober company on the swells. Little did I know that there is little that is compelling in the everyday life of the drunken. I'll tell you right now, it turned slightly ugly in the end. Nevertheless, we spent many a carefree hour on the rails, many a blind afternoon of seagulls, tumblers, and giggling, watching the ever-changing thrash and wash of wildlife left in our wake as we pushed through this latitude and that such-and-such such a current. There is a funny story about Levis Chase and Mary Gay. It seems they had a devil of a time a few days out, for apparently he had forgotten his supply of prophylactic device in his rush to embark, and she wouldn't or couldn't use an insect or a plunger or whatever they call those things women insert for safety. He ran about the boat for days, wildly trying to borrow or devise some easement, as it were. You can imagine how palsied we were with mirth at our thoughts of his predicament. But beyond these bits of broad farce, I was bored witless and quite adrift in my psyche. I would lie awake nights in my cabin, dreading the dreams I knew would follow my fall into lifeless sleep. There I would rest, stationary and prone, staring blankly at the darkened porthole, feeling cold and empty inside, listening to the slosh of water about our hull, clear as a sound effect. There I would lie while the water washed we sleeping sailors at our fitful snoozing, trying in idleness to recapture some of the mystery of the great adventure I had known as a younger man, the great adventure of life which had already shown me so much pain and sorrow, had revealed such an ugly slice of myself, my smallness, my aberrant ways, my willful lack of faith. An adventure through so much violence and death which had taken everything good and innocent and beautiful and grounded into the dust beneath my feet, and there I would stay until scuffed again by some unfriendly shoe. And here I was headed for Hong Kong, flesh pot of the East, where life was relatively cheap and families slept ten and twelve to a bed. Now, of course, I was excited and nervous, maybe even a little scared, and I imagine I was a little angry, strange as that may sound, for I had none of these doubts in Rome, nor even in Calabria. Coming up through the welded steel superstructure of the ship, up through the grills and grates and slip joints which held this old girl together, were the lyrics of a popular song. It came up from a shortwave in the stokehold, where the crew hung their hammocks and did whatever it is crew does at this point in the voyage, something to the effect the singer was mean and twisted and his phone unlisted. Ah, the common folk, I'd think, in their simple lyric cantankerousness. I'd light another cigarette and file my nails to the quick. Then, at long last, I'd fall into a fitful slumber as a multicolored dawn broke on the water. A few short hours later, I'd spring awake, ready for another day. My heavy heart would perchance be lightened by the sight of another yellow sun. I'd make my toilet and rush to the dining room, where Ching Ling, the cook, would stand poised with the porridge pot, about to throw the last of it down to the porpoise. In the nick of time, I'd stay his hand, and with jovial cursing beneath his breath, he'd reheat and serve it into my bowl, piping hot. Then a waiter would bring it along with hot buttered toast, juice from the citrus group, a rasher of bacon or a speck of ham, a cut of cold smoked fish. 
a mess of scrambled eggs and all the hot coffee I could drink. I, needless to say, would dive into my ears. Old Ching Ling would look over fondly and say, Ha ha, he is a hungry man, and then he'd laugh, but one's appetite is always augmented by the sea air. The dishwashers would be laughing, too, and slapping their thighs over that day's best joke. I must be honest about these people and admit every day's best joke had to do with the size of some man's cumbersome member and the comic atmosphere surrounding its insertion into the inferior world of the woman. You see, these people aren't like us, and neither high nor low makes any distinction between subjects fit for conversation and those better left to the nether regions of remote imagination. Why, it's not unusual for the novice listener in the hands of a clever raconteur to find himself being led along quite blindly by the silly, droll little recitation until suddenly, plop, plop, he'd find himself staring point-blank into the contents of this or that person's chamber pot. Not that I speak Chinese with any fluency whatsoever, just what I've been able to pick up off the radio and from friends. I'm sure their language, isn't old and venerable as it is, is just as much cattle slobber as our own. Well, we had running water and indoor plumbing. Don't think this vessel was some Bombay stinker or Filipino ferry boat or something of that ilk. But these men were simple laborers from a cruder, earthier culture than our own, full of arcane rituals of sanitation, a weakened sense of the fecal taboo, and, on the community level, long-standing sewer beds in dire need of ultra-modern septic engineering. This must be one of the things the United Nations is trying to accomplish. Why, I'm willing to bet some of these guys never even used a flusher until they'd signed on this cruise. As children they were, no doubt, encouraged to do it in the winter wheat or the rapeseed paddy where Grandad at that moment was hauling oats, part and parcel of that sometimes deadly roulette, human fertilization. As you clearly must see, there are absolutely no secrets on the ships at sea. In any case, we became quite friendly. When we finally arrived in Hong Kong Harbor and I descended the gangplank for the last time, they, to a man, shouted from the stern, Goodbye, Mr. Des, and then they laughed and slapped themselves. I pride myself on just this sort of human touch. Back in the mess, they began to smoke and play cards while they peeled their potatoes and diced their onions. I would relax at my table and smoke cigarettes over cup after cup of coffee, two sorely hurtful habits I have since entirely abandoned. <coughs> it is in my heart always to issue the strictest warning to all young people teenage girls in particular, to never, never pick up those deadly white coffin nails. I just know I could get through to them, to even the most abandoned. From there I made my way to the pilot house, where it seemed the captain awaited me amidst numberless charts and globes and sextant type of navigational tool. And there was a small but interesting collection of books there, all in strange miniature versions. Most seemed technical manuals, tables of vectors, conversions, and isolations, rigging handbooks, celestial negotiation, boiler maintenance in Spanish. 
I found a Shakespeare the size of your pocket, but it was in German. And an addition of the cantos no bigger than an infant's rubber shoe. You must have had close relations of the first kind with one of those marvelous private printing families so active these days in Europe and New England. But then, maybe they belong to the owners. The captain would offer me a chair and then take one himself at a lacquered driftwood coffee table with a green glass cover. He was very polite. Too polite, some would say. Everything was bolted to the floor, of course, so that it wouldn't float away should the ship sink. He would begin a typical seance by pouring the murky dark tea into thick-walled mugs of white porcelain, old, thick-lipped cups you no longer find attractive, from a large floral pot with his short, fat fingers. Then, after settling back into his chair and cradling his mug on his stomach, he would begin to converse in the most formal pigeon I've ever heard. Obviously, I've cleaned it up quite a bit. For example, out of the blue, he'd ask me, So, Mr. Desmond, in your country, history is but a construct? Have you ever noticed how foreigners will do that? Begin to chat on the most absurdly elevated level. It's because they don't really speak the language. I'd just begin to improvise and mumble. Yeah, it's uh, invented as it passes with precious little regard for the function of this particular intellection, let alone its adherence to the form of truth herself. In some short-sighted, self-serving, and contentedly complacent. And in your country, I'd ask, because he was being so polite. He'd arch his eyebrows one at a time and say, You mean here on my big boat? And then he'd laugh and begin thumbing through a magazine without bothering to pick it up off the glass-topped coffee table and closer to his eyes. He'd thumb with a big open-armed gesture for me to see, stopping at some large color photo or a small black-and-white snapshot. Perhaps he'd indicate with his index finger. He'd show me a picture of a hunchback, for instance, or a battle scene from some brush-fire war. A current event or a flip book full of shakes, presidents, bosomy starlets, half-naked accident victims. It was really quite random, and I don't mind saying I did not get the point at the time. I, being as I am persistently, if not belligerently, lineal and pedestrian, would say in turn, Well, all right, what about history here on your big boat? He'd laugh again in his silly laugh and say, Ah, oh, there's no history here, just location, climate, cruising speed, a clean deck, and order down below. I'm paraphrasing, of course, for though his pigeon was terse and lucid, it lacked standard grammar and pronunciation. Your log, I'd ask. My log? You want to see it? He'd respond cheerfully. He was nothing if not cheerful. Then he'd cross the room on his muscular little bow legs and fetch me a leather-bound volume neatly inscribed with an absolutely indecipherable character, something blocky and vaguely pictographic. His face would light with a completely innocent smile, and he'd say, You can't read this, can you? He he he, very few people can read this, but that's okay. It's just climate and location, cruising speed, wind velocity. Order in the court. He he he, I swear it was idiot city out there sometimes. Absolutely infuriating. 
but far be it from me to backseat drive 13,000 tons of German machinery cutting through the water. I'd accept another mug of murky tea and lay the leather-bound log on the tabletop. I had only to consider the alternatives to my present interview in order to take my punishment like a man. Watching the gulls dive for jetsam with Ernest and Nanette Cayman, attempting to help Levis Chase find some copulatory envelope in which to sheath his member. I could just imagine the scene in the stateroom he shared with his girlfriend Mary Gay. She'd be sprawled on her back, her legs raised and spread above her like eagle wings, her porcine little slit dripping and pulsing with the beat of her heart under her enormous breasts, rolling and sloshing about on her chest as our ship slashed into the crests of the waves, her eager, twitching finger poised for selfish pleasure. And he... He'd be rummaging through his chest of drawers for a piece of goat rubber or veal appendix. I'm dead sure it was rather sad. I invited him into my stateroom one afternoon for sherry and said to him quite confidentially, Look, Levis, old boy, why don't you just knock up the dear young thing and have done with it? I understand the medical facilities in Hong Kong are first rate. His face registered disbelief, so I went further. What I mean is, I ventured, why not go all the way? Or even better, why not dump your silly little boy-doe just inside the tradesman's entrance, as they say? Your normal, healthy volunteer can stand that sort of penetration without undue trauma. You know what I mean. Her back door. The dirt track. The bread rack. Do you follow me at all? I was fairly desperate to communicate anything at this point. I'd worked myself into quite a lather. Well, he looked at me as if I were the queerest thing he'd ever seen on this man's earth. He soon stopped coming by for sherry, which was perfectly all right with me, for by that time I was ended up to my ears with Miss Deborah Springman, a fellow passenger, and I had come to despise sherry. So the captain and I would sip from our mugs and settle quite peaceably into the rhythm of the sea. We slipped between England and France, slid past Spain and out of the North Atlantic into warmer waters off the west coast of Africa. This took a few days, but just think how difficult it would be in an airplane. In any case, we sailed and we sailed and left the bulk of Europe bobbing in our wake. There seems to be little for a captain to do on a modern sailing vessel given a crew worth salt and a head of steam. To pass the hours, I proffered the captain some bits of my personal history, the sort of spontaneous anecdotal generosity one often encounters in a solitary voyageur. I remember relating the singularly droll tale of my first sexual encounter, thinking that he, as a man of the world, an old naval hand would enjoy its telling. I was but a boy of thirteen when my uncle Lewis took me to the whorehouse across the river from where he lived in southern Ohio. He was the adopted son of my mother's mother's sister, who had married a Mr. Willifred Leclerc from Terre Haute and who lived with him on the outskirts of Newport, Ohio. Bewildering as it seems, Lewis's adopted father somehow insinuated himself into the mainstream of Middle Western wealth, and the family has never slid from this elevated ground. My own father died at my low birth and left me the little man in our house of seven women. 
On Tutkas, there was a whorehouse across the river where I was ushered into the chamber of a young Kentucky woman not much older than myself, but born to trot, as they say down there. She then initiated me into the book of masculine knowledge, the pages of the mystery of which still leaf freely in the hoary recesses of my mind. She took my hands in her hands and put them on her breasts, just visible beneath her flimsy silk kimono an island pajamas in the east. She then looked down on me with her large, moist, and heavily lidded eyes and said, These are the fruits of the flesh for the upkeep of a hungry man, or something to that effect. She then bid me squeeze and fondle the cute little things with their hard brown nubbins until my interest seemed to flag. At that time she unzippered my fly and dropped my trousers over my knees. She put my soft and still-hooded toy into her amazingly pliant and charmingly painted mouth where she sucked and chewed until at long last it stood tall. It was the biggest little erection this lad had ever seen. Slipping the hood back off the bulb and holding its length firmly in both hands, she said, "'This is your joystick.' And she lifted her nighty and revealed her lithe and naked torso." And she lay back on her bed, and then, bending her knees, showed me her moist and fleshy plop box, mid-south patois for a girly thing, under its filmy black shag. She cocked her head and drawled, Y'all fly me home, okay? I remember her words quite distinctly, for it was at that moment that I came off on her bedsheet in satin slippers. She cursed me then for soiling her linen, and I believe Uncle Lewis gave her extra money for the clean-up. On the way home, he teased me for being a screwball hotshot, but that didn't bother me. My lover today, with all the intensity of that boy so many years ago at the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi. However, it was years before I gained the control necessary for adequate penetration, and my full potential for pleasuring was not reached until I had myself circumcised at the age of twenty-eight. And let me just add that with all my advantages, I still hold the sex education of grammar students to be of paramount importance in our republic. I wish to indicate with this story that I have had relationships with women of all walks of life, some from the very best segments of our society and I have found several of them to be most intriguing. Of course, the risk of disease is so great these days that there is no doubt voluntary continence is a station on the road of success, and as you can see, I've been around in a most emphatically knotted Johnny-born yesterday. Perhaps the captain could grasp my point, but at times he would seem to doze in his chair. He would wake with a start and turn a page in the magazine. He would thumb and mumble very sympathetically. Ah, yes, very good, very good. Many stories, very bad. I don't believe that he quite understood that I was, in this situation, merely seeking to avoid the mundane negativity implicit in middle-class sensitivity, to bypass this negativity in order to achieve as quickly and directly as possible a more profound cancellation of the mechanistic and the sour-mash schools of thought. But he was considerate, if not comprehending, and we got on famously. When the captain was called to other duties, as he occasionally was, to the navigation of a shoal, perhaps, or some ceremonial responsibility inherent in his captaincy, 
or to the settlement of a grievance from one of the crew, a mixed lot of waterfront third-worlders from the major deep ports, I'd amble away to the lounge, a well-windowed affair abaft. There I would find the caiman, glasses in their hands, solid smiles across their lips. Old man Cayman rolled the liquid in his tumbler and mumbled, Ha, ha, ha. Nanette would perhaps be perched upon the piano, humming softly to herself some song of torchlight stardust and dark wine. She was a dreadfully lonely and neurotic woman, but quite successfully integrated into society. Ernest clapped my shoulder by way of greeting and breasted me yet again with another of his silly, punning conundrums. At this point, we were neither close nor involved the way we would eventually become. But relationships are so difficult to avoid in these days of avid tourism. Picture this, he'd begin. Picture this, if you would. And then he'd pucker up like the man on the box of oatmeal, sputtering a bit in his effort to affect correct pronunciation. He'd twinkle in the eye at this point and nudge me in the ribs most unpleasantly. Picture this, he'd begin again. A black guy and a white guy were in a nightclub with two eastern babes, maybe one Okinawan and one Manchurian, okay? Jay naked save for solid lucite stiletto-heeled shoes and floor-length Russian sable coats with silver fox trim. We'd have taken a table with a view of the sea while he continued his riddle. Obviously, he'd been up the whole night working through on this set piece with this little slag heap of verbiage. How these people fancy themselves, especially when under the influence. I'd steal a glance at Nanette, seeking any sort of solace or escape. She'd smile coyly and recross her legs. They were quite well preserved, despite her crow's feet. She dressed in a modern version of the pre-war style, abbreviated beehive below and yards of flounce on top. Cayman continued then after an appreciative glance at Nanette's recrossing. Now these guys in the nightclub were the sort of men who'd cozy up to rich women, women who'd give anything for a good time. They'd pleasure them, if you know what I mean, show them a good time in exchange for favors, money, things like that. I don't know if you've ever run across this sort in your travels. You've been around, you must have seen them. He paused for a moment and put a finger to the corner of his eye. Well, anyway, he'd say, these yellow babes were rich. They each had a roll of fifties in the pockets of their minks, as thick as a widow's wrist, maybe a couple of grand each just for drinks and cabs and gratuities and such like. So, to make a long story short, a gun goes off in the middle of the dance floor where a mixed crowd is dancing to beat the band. We don't need to know who shoots it off. The white guy jumps up on his chair and the darky dives under the table. Now what I want to know is... What made the jig go low? He paused. Jiggolo. Get it? He would back away slightly and chuckle under his breath, more like a forced exhale, searching my face for a reaction. Then he'd make a move to chuck me on the upper arm, but truncate the gesture in midair. That's ah, all right, anyway, he claimed lamely. It's a lousy joke. Really, he needn't have told me of its quality. It's just not the sort of story one wouldn't tell really educated people. And it's only in North America that the pun is seen as indicative of intelligence, culture, and refinement. Pearl beyond belief is how I would describe it. But what was I to do? We were virtual prisoners on the high seas, and it seemed as if forever. In actual fact, it was only 4 February 1979.
I attempted to tidy up the conversation by saying, well, that may well be what you called them back in 1933, but nowadays we call them pimps. I did not intend my reference to their ages to be in the least pejorative, and given my feelings, I assure you it was anything but. Pimp, oh my, said Nanette, perking her head upon her smooth white shoulders. Her attention would decline should the conversation not be of interest. A hateful species, I agree, I said cheerfully, but not beyond comprehension in our present day and age. That's it exactly, she said with meaning, leaning slightly across the table so as to seem closer to my thought. You must be very bright. Were you well educated? I was somewhat taken aback by such a frankly personal question, but admitted to having received a primary sort of schooling from small religious institutions in the northeast of the country. Ah, oh, that's all right, said Cayman. Oh, no, we shan't hold that against you, added Nanette. But do go on with what you were saying and complete your thought. I could see as well as you can that they were baiting me with flattery in order to bring me out, but I continued nonetheless to expound some of the unformed thoughts knocking about my brain at that moment. Well, I said crisply, our pimp could be such a man as would prefer to live proudly with his substantial faults rather than meekly squeak by on his meager virtues, thinking great vice exposed to the open air of public regard to be so much more attractive than modest virtue closeted and left to grow limp and turgid, or something to that effect. Right, limp is no good, commented Cayman, though I doubt he had even bothered to follow my exposition. "'And turgid is terrible,' added Nan. "'We were sitting at a small glass-topped cafe table. "'Through its transparent surface I watched Nanette repeatedly cross her legs, "'exposing and re-exposing for just a flash "'the soft white flesh of her inner thigh. "'Then she said, "'What an exciting idea, "'and what fun to search out this hidden virtue in such a man. "'What a good deed that would be.' We were all quite still for several moments, sensing perhaps Nanette had more to say. Then she said in a girlish voice, I remember I read a book in 1933. I remember a girl receives a telegram from her best but flippant girlfriend who was to marry a man named Burden and left a day early for the wedding. She's kidnapped off the platform by a bogus groom-to-be, in fact a golden boy gone bad. Need I go further? Not really, dear, came and cut in quickly, but it had no effect on Nanette. She seemed to be in something of a trance. He is really a wife-killer who nabs the girl because she suspects his true character. They all get married in the end except the girlfriend. She seems to be taking the next boat for Europe to recover her spirits. It's really low, a mass of crude cliché and even cruder violence, but I must say I enjoyed it. She smiled at me, and I could see Cayman himself was modeling his face from dumb pleasure to a painful grimace with some rapidity. Unfortunately, I was forced to leave the table at this point. I wanted to say, take care, lest he be all bad, but felt there was a gray exudation just beginning to ooze from my brow. Sheer imagination, I'm sure. I mean, I don't think anyone could see it, the gray exudation. <laughs> I excused myself and went straight to my bunk. I slept for the next seventeen or eighteen hours and woke as the day broke sunny and bright through my porthole the next day. We were sailing just off the coast of the Spanish Sahara, which remained hidden beyond the curve of the earth. 
After breakfast, the captain said we would soon see land, and a few moments later there it was, just above the horizon. My insides leapt at this first sight of Africa. Perhaps it was blackest Senegal about Dakar, but it was hard to tell from our dim view of tree-clad hills. We kept this land in sight until we anchored off Monrovia, the first stop in our voyage. <laughs>